Welcome back to Understanding VC. I'm your host Rahul. Today my guest is Vlad Tropko. Vlad is a partner at Digital Horizon, a venture capital fund focused on investing in early stage companies led by immigrant founders. Fund operates in London, Tel Aviv and Dubai and specializes in supporting startups in fintech, martech and e-commerce. With over 15 years of experience in venture capital and private equity, Vlad has successfully closed more than 30 deals throughout his career. Some notable deals include Quantena Communication, which was acquired by On Semiconductor, and Zipline International. Now let's talk. Hi, Vlad. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Raoul. Pleasure to be here, and thank you for for having me here. So uh, you you were born in Siberia, right? How was that like? It was almost forty years ago. It's snowy and cold place. to live so i remember the time when i moved to school when it was minus 40 quite cold but it gives me a lot of resilience and teach me to taught me to to be very strong and passionate about the life yeah so i mean what did you do when growing up so i was there until 8 so i was quite small and can't remember a lot of things from that times at 8 i i moved to moscow to study there and start working but from my what i remember it was a really small city at the moment when i was born and right now it's one of the largest cities in our country okay so what were your interests other than uh, you know the studies did you have other interests uh, like in hobbies so so uh, i'm a liverpool fan for example and i'm uh, watching the football a lot with the friends so because i was studying when i was young a little bit in in england and several guys told me that i looks like robbie fowler the nice. one of the yeah, one yeah, yeah. one of the major strikers uh, goal scorer strikers and goal scorers in liverpool from that time so i was i think at that time i was 13 years old from that time i started supporting liverpool and continue to do this uh, i i love to travel and and learn new things it's it helps me a lot to to see a bunch of angles in 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 my work yeah i you definitely do look like robbie fowler <laughs> and also i'm a big manchester united fan by the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah like you used this year so yeah 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 and you know what do you think is the greatest risk that you've taken so far in your life i think it, i have a it, Thank, thank you for it's for a great question because I was thinking about it for a long time. So I have a two stories about this. First is that when I was I think 23 or 24, I decided to receive my motorbike license. And when I moved to to, to learn, my coach didn't know that I don't know how to drive a proper bike, ju- just a proper bike. So and, and I was the first student in his, in his life which don't know how to ride a bike, even before sitting down the motorbike. but i survive and like like luckily his his motorbikes at at that moment was okay so i was i fallen down by a bunch of the times but but continue my effort and and then issue my driving license for this it's from one side from the work perspective i think the largest the biggest risk which I, which i took was my first angel ticket i wasn't at that moment i wasn't rich enough but i was curious to try and i'm thinking that it's it was the first ticket was my mba in investments in personal investments so in in the right now when I, people who are thinking about angel angel investments i definitely think that uh, your first couple of tickets it's your payment for education 
So instead of paying 100 to 200 grand in, for your education, you can work and try out the angel, angel investments instead of. And the, the amount of education which you will grab and skills which you'll find in the, and learn would be enormous and maybe even more than in the, through the MBA. May I ask, like, how so? Uh, like, how can a, a two, three angel investment teach you more than an MBA does? If you're properly working with the founders, you will see a lot of things about their psychology, how they are working together, how they are building the product from the scratch. So, for example, in one in my first angel ticket, uh, two out of three founders uh, moves away from the company within the two, first two years. And it, 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 uh, the third founder will become the only one struggles a lot from the psychology perspective, from the product perspective, et cetera, et cetera. And, and luckily he survived and built a great team and great product, but still it took him a lot of time to go through this kind of process. And, and so, so it's, uh, it gives me a lot of flavor about some structures which I'm using right now when I'm investing in the startups, like for example, one of the key things when you're thinking about investing is that right now, quite majority of the startups have a reverse options. So for most people who don't, who haven't seen this, it means that if one of the founders will leave the company within the first one or two years, they will, they will not receive a significant portion of their stake. Even they started as, I don't know, 50-50 co-founders or one third for each. But if they will leave within a year or two, they will have only one, one quarter or one third of their initial state. And it helps the founders who will stay in the company to, to continue and give some additional equity to the new employees or new co-founders. So, so one, one of the examples which from the early days of my learnings. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard you talk about how founding team psychology is responsible for 95% of the success of the startup, especially in the early stages. So what do you think are like, you know, from a psychology perspective, some positive signs and also some negative signs? So basically, recently, one of the research from European VCs shows that more than 50% of the of, of, partic of particular decision is based on the management team. So the management team is a core for success in, in any startup. From the psychology perspective, it's, we see the, uh, we, we are looking on, on dynamic between the founders and on the skills which they have. Do they, do they help each other? Do what, if one, one of the founders is major one or not, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Because it's like a proper marriage because every startup, every successful startup, takes 10 to 15 years to grow to, to the real, really big company. So, and if there is, there is a lot of problems be, between the founders, when they speak, when they pitch to the, to, to VCs and to, to the possible customers, it can bring a lot of issues later on. So they, so if we're seeing, uh, if we're looking on particular management teams, we're trying to find the passion and common passions. It's great if they have a common background because it means that they work together for a certain time. And by the way, it's quite similar to the VCs as well. So one of the key risks is that when you invest in a, in a VC or in a startup is that founders will dis disagree on certain topics and move away from each other. So from other sides, are they introverts or extroverts? Are they first-timers or serial entrepreneurs, etc., etc.? So we're looking on each founder as the, on each team as the 
as the organism, let's call it that way. So which, and we are like, like psychology doctors and we are trying, and we are trying to assess each one, uh, each team, can they survive through the ups and downs? Because all the startups, I mean, definitely each and every startup has had a, a lot of struggles and they, they will need a psychology support and, and support in, in, a, in a bunch of other areas during their ups and downs. There is no silver bullet to build a unicorn or a decacorn. You can see on the market that there are psychopaths who are raising billions of, of cash and there, and there are several guys who are, just, who are just doing good things in proper way. From, for, uh, I like the idea which I heard recently that there are only two risks in, in a startup world. First is execution risk when, when you just uh, build a proper business. Uh, and the second one is engineering risk. When you're building a new business model, a, a new spaceship or new, I don't know, organic food, whatever. So, uh, and while we're assessing partic particular company, we're trying to understand what key risks are in, in a particular product and particular team. Yeah. So uh, do you have like a process on assessing a team? For example, you know, uh, like a checklist or something like that, or it's just very intuitive. It's quite intuitive, but definitely we're asking a lot of people up and uh, receiving uh, third-party references about each uh, about co-founders. So we are, we're trying to, and basically we're also trying to to have some sort of marriage after a couple of dates with the founders. So we're trying to have some uh, prototype with, uh, with the people chatting with each other, ch chatting about the values. I'm also from time to time asking founders, uh, is their partner happy or not? Because uh, if we're coming back to the psychology, one, one of the key issues is that founders need to be focused on the business. That's why, for example, we love when the founders partners are happy they, uh, and, the, and the founders could, could fully focus on the business. From other side, for example, we don't like to invest into founders we, who recently moved to a new country because on, av on average, it takes two to three years to settle up everything, either for, to put kids in the school, to find the proper uh, house or, or flat, etc., etc., and open a banking account. So, uh, and, but as I said in the beginning, the startup world is a networking game. So uh, to build a proper network of people who will give you money or to, who will you hire, it takes time. So you still need to build, to build your relationships, your network within a new city or new region where you move to. If I'm speaking about immigrants. One quick comment before we move on. You know, my, my wife tells me that, you know, my, my priority should be to make her happy. Otherwise, she'll make sure that I'm unhappy. <laughs> so I totally understand that. Yeah. Also, you know, we didn't actually go through this. How did you become a VC? And then, you know, I understand that you guys exclusively invest in immigrants. Uh, love to know your thought behind that. So my story is the following. After the graduation, I moved into the investment banking. I became the, the research analyst in investment bank focused on oil and gas. And after a couple of years, I thought that it's, um, this profession is close to that. And I moved into the real invest investments. So I moved into the private equity world and family office world. And then uh, at some moment, uh, 2008, uh, the crisis of 2008 arrived. And from that time, I, uh, I started to invest into the, into the VC. So when I jumped into the VC, uh, gross VC venture fund, 
after several years, I built my network in, in a global network of VCs and founders in the U.S., in Israel and Europe. And I started investing my personal money into this world. So my, my first deal on personal basis was almost 10 years ago. But whole my, I think whole my VC background is 15 years. So around five years ago, I jumped as the first early stage VC partner to the Digital Horizon. So uh, Digital Horizon is, we start with 25 million under management. Right now we have 300 million under management. The focus is on immigrant founders. And the reason of this is, there, there are several reasons of this. First is that some of you may know that around 60 to 70% of NASDAQ was built by, by immigrants, first and second generation. And, yeah. the, and the reason of that is that immigrants already took a risk to move to another country. So they are risk takers from one side. From another side, from the cost perspective, most of them are still using a lot of capacities from their home countries. And, and if you're considering the U.S. salaries or U.K. salaries, it's much cost-efficient way to build a startup. So you just need less money to build a similar product in, in U.K. or U.S. while you're outsourcing it to Eastern Europe, India, or Egypt. So that's probably the key. So our focus in Digital Horizon is in fintech and B2B software. We, we have a two, for two funds. One is on early stage, so late seed around A stage fund, and another fund is the growth stage VC. So we, we are pro providing some sort of uh, to our investors access to multi-stage multi in investment strategy. Yeah. So. And also, may I ask, so at Series A, right, especially now, how should startup think about growth? Because in the last 10, 15 years, you know, a lot of startup grew by just spending money. Not So it's like, you know, you can really grow fast if you spend, you know, if you're selling a dollar for 85 cents, right? So that famous saying, a lot of companies did this over the last decade or so. What are your thoughts on what startup should be doing, especially from now on? Sure. So, so uh, first of all, during my career, during the last 15 years, I was part of three or four crises like this. So before that, it was more more like a vertical crisis, like like clean tech uh, boom and burst in in 2012, 2014, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, but uh, if we're speaking about the growth, first of all, we will see that the market is will grow, and but it will take time. So right now you need to be resilient and focus on cost efficiency. So idea is if you can build the proper unit economics fast enough, it's much better. And I'm not speaking on A rounds to be profitable, but the investors will need to see profitability within a couple of years after the investment. It doesn't mean that after two years you need to be profitable, but, but you need to understand how you can do it properly to become profitable. From the idea of, of spending, I don't know, a lot of money into the marketing, etc., we luckily we didn't invest in any e-grocery stores, e-grocery startups or bikes, bike startups, which spend a lot of money. And the reason of that is because they're not capital efficient, and we see the capital efficiency as a core to to our investments. Yeah, you, there there is a, lo a lack of loyalty in those startups. Comparing to the fintech or B2B software where you can see proper retention and proper, proper relations with the customers for a long time. So, for example, there are a bunch of the infrastructure fintech companies who are still alive after 50 years. 
and a bunch of the banks are using them, them and don't think, you even don't think about changing them. So it doesn't mean that the new startup can arrive and take the, those customers, but still there is a huge opportunity to disrupt incumbents and, and doing this without significant, you know, selling for a free great product. For example, we, when we're asking people, do they have a pilots? We're always asking if they're paid or not. And if they're, if they're free, most of the customers will don't care. They will use it a couple of times and then forget. But if a particular founder can sell it for money, it's one of the signals for us that first he, he or she can sell and think properly about the, prop, about the business. Because some people thinking that the startup is not a business, but in the end, it, it, it is a business and it's hard business. And the, you need to set up it properly. We clearly understand the operations would be not on A rounds, for example. It would be very early in the, from the operations perspective. So you will not write all the playbooks for your growth. But later on, you need to build, you need to build the, the processes, et cetera, et cetera, to, to build a proper business in the next three to four years after our investments on the A round. Yeah. So, you know, can you name a specific infrastructure in fintech you know that you think there's an opportunity to build right now all right so right what we're seeing right now is that there is a huge demand from wealth management on a new infrastructure place it a lot so a lot of because the wealth is changing the the place i would say so because because of the aging population more and more people with the millions need need an access to the to the proper infrastructure and historically wealth management infrastructure is i think 40 to 50 years old in, in most of the multifamily offices or applications and we see that the wealth management is one of the core infrastructure which which need to be disrupted in the following years we see several startups in this space and we believe that there is going to be much more the issue which they have is that it's a lack of trust and even when you look on companies like Revolut, historically, when they were starting, nobody having their more than a couple of hundreds in the bank account. Right now, there is some trust and the average deposits are deposit, but the money which you have on your Revolut bank account is a little, uh, much higher comparing to what, what they're building at the beginning. It's from one side. So another infrastructure which we believe that will grow in the future in, in, in the next decade would be C4 tools and treasury management tools. So SVB crisis shows that a lot of founders have just had just one account. And because it's quite intensive for early stage startup to have two accounts and manage them properly, we will see much more startups in this space, which will help to manage your cash, your forex exchange rates, et cetera, et cetera, to help founders and the small, medium, and even enterprises to, to assist in their daily activity. Yeah. I, so going back to wealth management, you know, th this is uh, so true. So yeah, even in my case, uh, you know, in my revenue account, I keep less amount. It's my, you know, daily expense account. And I don't trust it to use it as my main account. So, so this is then not a tech problem. Is it, is more to it, right? Than just building better infrastructure. It's, if I'm speaking about the FinTech in general, it's a lot of things is about the trust. 
So, and for example, in Revolut case, uh, when or if uh, they will receive a banking license in the UK, it would be much more trust in, in, in their business. So comparing to Monza or Starlink, for example, who has this banking account. And, and in a similar way, it's, if I'm speaking about the wealth management applications, you could, most of wealth persons will, person will not give money to the startup which just appear. That's the biggest issue because you don't, you just don't have enough trust to give, to manage, I don't know, one million or a couple of, or even a couple of hundreds, thousands to, to, to the people which you would just pop up. We're, that's why we see an um, enormous amount of startups which are not managing the money, but but give you some sort of overview over your assets. And later on, while you will build the trust between you and the startup, they will ask you to to grab some of your money and, under their man, management. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, going back to you know, you mentioned that you, you'd like to invest in capital efficient businesses, right? So. I see this similar argument from a number of VCs and it makes total sense. But these services need to exist, right? Because, you know, I mean, we have got all gotten used to Uber and all these delivery services plus the bike sharing and stuff. So then there is some sort of value creation that's happening. It's just that nobody has figured out a way to make this profitable business and also maybe, you know, build a boat around it. It's... So I think even in the e-grocery space, there, there are a couple of companies who are profitable after a couple of years. There, there are a bunch of the hurdles to be profitable in this business, like like cost of labor. That's why, for example, Eastern Europeans are much more profitable comparing to U.S. or or Eastern or Western European startups. Like, for example, in Eastern Europe, there there is a the Turk Getir from Turkey. So they, I'm not sure about if the Gitter is profitable or not, but I'm sure that their their core Turkey business is profitable. So from the VC perspective, we're focused on the size of the market. And if the market is too small and too tiny, it, if you don't, it wouldn't be interesting for us because we could not have a large outcome from the yeah. particular startup from one, one side. From the other side, in this particular area, I mean, in e-grocery space, the key was to, to grab a maximum amount of market share. So, and, and the hope was that if you have enough of brand awareness and market and market share, you, you can build more loyal customer base. That was the initial idea if we're speaking about e-grocery, for example. But yeah. if I'm speaking about the enterprise software, it's a much slower process. I mean, the sales cycle in enterprise software on average is between 12 to 18 months. In in the PLG like startups, it's much faster, so two to six months. And PLG startups are more looks like right now like like a B two C startups in some way, and that's why we are looking on some metrics. If we consider PLG startup, we are looking on them like like proper B two C startups with the, all the kind of conversion rates. Is it possible to 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 make those companies profitable? Yes. Do we uh, do we asking for a profitability on round A? No, and we 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 see that it's still a lot of marketing hacks to be considered to grab enough audience and uh, and customers to grow and be a really big company. Yeah, and how do you think VCs can overcome their own prejudices and make better investment decisions over time? 
It's it's a great question. Nobody knows this particularly because the, uh, what we're seeing right now is that, in, for example, in Europe, a lot of geographical, uh, geographically focused funds are focused on part particular uh, country. And the reason of that is a cultural. So uh, I'm researching a lot of things about the cultural difference and how to forget about it. But still, uh, most of the VCs are focused, uh, for example, on warm, warm introductions. And again, it's the reason of this is, a, is because you receive a signal from whom you receive a deal and from one side and from another side, it builds you some sort of trust. So we see enormous number of initiatives to, to help to the female founders, for example. We as the Digital Horizon in, in totally invest, I think share of female founders in our portfolio is around 17%. So it's six or seven times more than on average in UK. And, and we love immigrants because the significant number of immigrants doesn't have enough network to, and again, trust to, to fundraise from, from, from local VCs. It's hard question to crack because biases is all around us. It could be about gender, race, etc. But we are, we are trying to, uh, while we are uh, reviewing particular startup and particular team, we are trying to avoid it as we can. And you're trying to avoid this because you think that would generate better returns? Yep. The, it's uh, from one side, it's, uh, it's our angle. So the whole our team are immigrants. So the team of Digital Horizon consists of people from Israel, South Africa, India, etc. And we believe that we can understand better the immigrants and, and, and help them to settle, uh, to build their network. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of prejudices, a lot of, uh, you know, people who work in VC, uh, mostly from finance background. So now, what do you think uh, would be your advice to somebody who does not have a finance background and also not a successful founder yet <laughs> to, to break into VC, especially if you're something like, if you're doing something like me, uh, running a podcast. So uh, there are a bunch of the ways how you can break in the VC world. You can, you as a person can join the scale up startup, which is growing, I don't know, from hundred to 200 people to several thousands. And it will be a great signal for VC to hire you. Because you know how to build a how to build a scale up, and and they they are looking for people who ha, who has the skills and experience. We we also see that the people who has a proper community can have good access to the founders. So, for example, in your case, the podcast, and you have an access to the VCs and to the founders as well. So in, you can you can start investing your personal money on a personal basis, and then build the syndicates like 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 a lot of people are doing. Right now, the cost of the syndicate is quite low, so you can find the proper startup and leverage your audience to invest together with you. And uh, while you will invest, you will show to, to, to VCs that you know what, what to look on in, in, in the startups and in your process and mind thinking about the particular vertical startup or, or idea. So... It, it definitely will help you to build your track record. And then maybe instead of joining the VC, you can build your own VC fund in, in, or join the, some of the partners of who you interviewed could propose you to join them. Yeah. And I've heard from many other people that, you know, you know investors will back you 
I mean, LPs will back you if you have a track record and also if they like you. What is that like? You know, <laughs> it's it's again. I think I said it too much time during this podcast, but uh, but it's everything about the trust. So people love to to invest into the. Again, it's some sort of bias, but but you could not avoid it. So uh, people love to invest into the similar co- personal as themselves, maybe younger, maybe older, etc. So definitely you should find the co- several common points, common interests, for example, with the particular investors. And uh, this will help you to to in- basically sell yourself to, to investor. And by the way, we as a VC, we believe that we are some sort of marketplace. We are... Selling our sell, sell our minds to our LPs and investors to the fund, and sell our skills and and our minds to the founders as well. Because founders can also choose between if they are great founders, they can choose between several LP, several VCs. So and we need we need to sell ourselves to to those people. Yeah, one last thing. You know, what is super old in VC that you think won't change for a long period of time, and also what is new in VC that you think will remain in the future i think this is still is a networking game networking game so it's mean that it's every i mean on early stage definitely it's everything is about the people so and about the relations between people so if you i saw several times when when the vc is back with several serial entrepreneurs several times and even previous startup will fail but if this is believes in particular person and they will back them in in a one on, on or several startups and startup efforts. So I think the relationships, trust, and in 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 way of building the, the and fundraising the startups will stay the same. From other side, we see the growing number of of tools which assist to VCs. It it helps you to source deals to 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 consider them and to look on the me- metrics, etc. And those tools will will help to make the proper decision maybe without biases from one side and from other side to make a faster decision and and more reliable decision, let's call that. Yeah, this was great, Vlad. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Raul. Thank you very much for your time. It, it was a pleasure to be here.